Hello and welcome to The Politics of Peterborough, a podcast where we chat with the people who have been elected to make decisions about our city and those who try to influence them. I'm your host, Dave Adcock. If you have any suggestions as to who you'd like to listen to on a future episode of the podcast, or have any questions you'd like to put to my guests, you can get in touch via Twitter or Facebook at politicspboro, or send an email to politics.peterborough at hotmail.com. On with the show. My guest this month was born in Uganda before moving to Britain at the age of four. He qualified as a solicitor, spent time working in the city in London. He became involved in the Conservatives in the late 80s, serving as vice chairman between 2001 and 2005. He was a candidate in Birmingham in the 1997 general election and in Northampton South in 2001, losing to Labour on both occasions, before being selected as the replacement for the retiring Sir Brian Mulwiney at the 2005 election in the North West Cambridgeshire constituency. He comfortably won the seat with a slightly increased majority of just under 10,000 and has held the seat ever since, most recently in 2019 with a majority of 26,000. Shailesh Vara, welcome to the Politics of Peterborough. Uh, Thank you very much, Dave, and uh, thank you for the invitation. Now, uh, was your household uh, growing up particularly political? Uh, Actually, my my, uh, growing up was in anything but a political household. Uh, By way of background, uh, I was born in Uganda, as, as you said in your introduction, And my father came to this country in 1963 and got himself a job, got some accommodation for the family, and then nine months later, he sent some money over for us to come over. So when we came here, we came to a home. Um, Unlike people who come to this country now, where there's an expectation that you just land on our shores and say, here I am, can I have some accommodation and welfare? Uh, That was certainly not the way it was done in those days. And my father's priorities were basically to ensure that his children got a good education and that there was food on the table and we had a roof over our heads. Uh, The idea that his son would one day end up being a member of parliament, uh, a minister, and then in the cabinet uh, was nowhere on the the radar. Uh, And my father was was a carpenter. Uh, And so when we came here, we lived in a uh, fairly deprived area of Birmingham where uh, we lived and I grew up. Uh, and so, you know, Dad went out uh, with with his tools uh, and worked as... A, he was actually a joiner rather than a carpenter, but the, the two overlap. So with that in mind, what was it that uh, drew you into politics and then specifically the Conservative Party? It happened when I was at school doing my A-levels, and I was doing politics, economics and history A-levels. And I had a wonderful teacher, a chap called Ted Taylor, um, who I'm still in touch with. I mean, we lost touch for a while and then... When I got elected, he wrote to me and, and, you know, we kept in touch. But he opened, he had a wonderful way of teaching, which awakened the mind to question things. And I started questioning some of the historical decisions that were taken uh, in our parliament. And I thought, well, actually, this is something I really do find interesting. And then I thought to myself, well, hang on, there's a danger here that if I don't get involved in politics... I could become a frustrated politician sitting in, in, in my armchair in the years to come saying, no, that's how they should have done it. Oh, how stupid. And I thought, well, rather than that, if you do feel that strongly, get in there and make that difference uh, that I want to make. Obviously, as I said in the introduction, you tried for two other seats before um, being successful in the Northwest Cambridgeshire seat. Had you ever visited Peterborough before, before dis- or making that decision to, to go for the seat? Um I had visited Peterborough, but just as a visitor. But in terms of, if I may just go back in, in those two seats, 
I think it's important to recognize that for somebody with my background, Indian origin, born in Uganda, to be absolutely honest, the Tory party was not exactly uh, very friendly in those days. And I did struggle to make my way in the Tory party. Now, you may say, well, why did you choose the Tory party? Uh, The fact is, as far as I saw it, both Labour and the Tories were racist. If you looked at uh, Labour areas where people grew up, uh, if you found the ethnic minority people there, uh, the Labour Party would say, we'll look after you. But they weren't doing anything to get them out of those deprived areas. Whereas the Tories, to your face, would say, actually, I'd rather you didn't come to my country. Uh, so there was one was uh, more subtle and the other one was simply overt. Uh, so I, 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 on that basis that both of them uh, weren't friendly towards non-white people. And, and on the Labour front, let's be realistic, the unions were very strong on wanting uh, nine to five hours, so much time for tea breaks, so much for lunch breaks. And when you had all these Asians coming over, wanting to open up corner shops and opening at six in the morning and closing at midnight, uh, that didn't go down too well with uh, the unions and uh, the, the, the Labour Party and, and all of that. So basically, I took the view that both were as bad as each other on the, on the race issue. And then I looked at the policies and I just felt that the Conservative Party was a party that I uh, uh, felt more closer with, uh, their family values, their values on education. And actually, Dave, the fact that they said to people, look, we will give you a helping hand up, but then it's up to you uh, and, and you make the best of your talents, your ability. We will provide the infrastructure uh, and that helping hand is for the vulnerable. Uh, but, you know, uh, the infrastructure is there for you to make the most of what you can. And, and with my background, coming to this country, unable to speak a word of English at the age of four, being in, in, in a very deprived area of Birmingham, inner city Birmingham, uh, managing to find myself into a grammar school, going to a red brick university, uh, becoming a solicitor, working in the city, becoming a member of parliament, uh, and then ending up as a minister and everything else. I mean, that is why I ended up becoming a Tory, because I felt that that was what it, what it offered. Now, obviously, you talked there and you've talked previously about the racism that you and your family suffered in the early years after your arrival. Do you still face that kind of abuse? Um, as the years have gone on, it's got less. Uh, there is still some. It's a bit more subtle now. Uh, in in the old days, and, and when I say old days, uh, when I got elected uh, just over 18 years ago, uh, I still had, still had hostility on the doorstep. Uh, and one of the ways that they would do it is say, where were you born? And I would say, Uganda. Oh, right, I'm sorry, mate, you know, um, th- th- then you can't have my vote. And then I remember one occasion, uh, a guy was uh, we were at a, f- a function, not a, a function, and on the side he was saying, oh, I could never vote for you, mate, um, because you weren't born here. And then five minutes later, he was talking about his military, his father's military background. And I said to him, so where were you born? And he said, oh, he was born in Germany. So, you know, it's all right for him to be born abroad, but not for me. Uh, there are subtle ways. But to answer your question, less so now, but it's still there. Actually, on, on social media, and uh, it's uh, more prevalent, but, but physically, uh, much less so. I mean, speaking about um, social media, you take a very different approach to social media than your city uh, fellow city MP, Paul Bristow. Um, so far in October, I think you've posted four times on X, uh, whereas Mr. Bristow's posted 44 times. Why is that? Uh, 
it goes back to, I think, about 10, 12 years ago when I was thinking of going on to social media. And I was just thinking of going to social media, and I was a government whip at the time, and I was asked to speak in, in uh, justice questions. And I said something which upset some people, and I started getting some serious threats. So I wasn't on social media, yet social media was posting these really unpleasant comments about me and towards me. And I ended up uh, being told by the Cambridge police, we'd rather you and your family didn't come home this weekend. There were three police forces investigating this matter, the Metropolitan Police, the Cambridge Police, and, and a force in Wales. And I took the view, well, if this is the way I'm going to get treated when I'm not on social media, what's it going to be like when I am? So my views of going into uh, going, using social media in those days sort of backed off. I then did do Twitter. I think about four years ago I started on Twitter. Um, and, and I take the view that I will post things when I do things rather than simply say, looking forward to Primus's questions today. Yeah, fine, OK. I'm, you know, if, I've got a, if I'm looking forward to it, that's fine. I, I, I take the view that uh, uh, my followers and other people have other things to, that they may be looking forward to rather than knowing my, my things. So I tend to be a bit more selective on that. And, and of course, with social media, um, you will be aware that the BBC did uh, some research uh, last year. They monitored all the MPs. And in November, they did an article where they had... Uh, uh, they published the results, and I was the seventh most abused uh, member of parliament in a six-week period. Uh, and, uh, you know, I get that, despite the fact that I'm on limited use for social media. Uh, so, so I think I'm doing okay. Can I also just say on Twitter, uh, one of the nicest things on Twitter uh, is the mute button. Uh, and uh, so, so uh, th th there are people out there who regularly, and they just can't wait for me to do a tweet. As soon as I've done a tweet, whatever it is, uh, they get all exi excited, uh, and, and it's always negative. Uh, but, of course, the mute button means I don't have to put up with uh, their, their nonsense, uh, and I rather feel sorry for all their followers uh, who get these uh, personal comments against me, uh, but their target, me, um, is totally oblivious of it. Now, during your time as an MP, two of your colleagues have been murdered. How safe do you feel when you're undertaking your duties? I'm a lot more careful now um, than before, and that's not to say I wasn't careful before. As I said to you um, some time ago, I had three police forces looking into, into matters. Uh, David Amos was a dear friend of mine, uh, and he died just over two years ago. And, and, and uh, I'm ever mindful of what happened to him, but others as well. So I am, I am careful. Uh, and, and, of course, having served in Northern Ireland, uh, first as a junior minister and then as Secretary of State, um, you know, it, it brought security to, to a new angle. But I, but I do try to be careful. And, and in terms of surgeries and the like, I, I do have them, but I don't advertise them. Uh, and what happens is that, you know, if people want to see me, they write to me. Uh, and then, uh, of course, I will arrange to see them. Uh, but they will be informed very near the time of the surgery uh, date as, as to the venue uh, they'll be told the time, but the venue I'll, I'll keep uh, until last minute. And this is all advice from the police. Uh, and I know some of my colleagues prefer to still advertise or whatever, and that's that's their call. Uh, I used to, when I first got elected, have uh, coffee mornings. 
And uh, myself and, and the local councillors, we would distribute about 1,500 leaflets to 1,500 households uh, saying Shanishvara will be at such and such place, community hall, village hall, whatever, uh, Saturday from such time to such time, come and have a biscuit and, and coffee or tea. Uh, but I had to stop that. I, that went on for a few years. But then it got to the stage where I needed to ask the police to be uh, on the door and, and, and stay inside because uh, we had one or two instances. Uh, so that stopped, uh, which is regrettable. But certainly uh, I do remember. I remember, I think, in my first, not, not when I got elected in 2005, but in 2010, if memory serves me right, my election literature said 25,000 people invited for coffee. Uh, fortunately, not everyone took me up on the offer, uh, but a good number did. But a good number did. But, you know, times are changing now. Now, you have a, a very large constituency in terms of area. Obviously, it covers the south of uh, Peterborough, south of the river, um, and then any number of smaller villages uh, to the south. Do you feel that you're visible enough within the city of Peterborough? You know, Dave, the difficulty I have, my constituency is just under 300 square miles, uh, which is massive. So, uh, you know, I mean, some const- some MP colleagues can stand at the highest point in their constituency, do a 360-degree turn, and they've covered the entire their constituency. There are parts in the southern part of my constituency, I can do a 360-degree turn and not see a, any households at all. So, one, it's the size, and, and given the nature, anything I do in Peterborough is not going to be covered in the North Huntingdonshire part that I have. And anything I do in the North Huntingdonshire villages is not going to be covered in Peterborough. So there is that challenge. But I do think that that, uh, there is also the the, the fact that, you know, I may do things and I do do things which simply aren't uh, noted by people. Uh, We have Peterborough Matters. We've got the Peterborough Telegraph. We've got local radio, local TV. Uh, and to give you an example, I mean, uh, last week I was at uh, Helpston. Uh, it was a Friends for Ukraine um, gathering to celebrate the wonderful work and amount of money that's been raised here. There were 100 people there. Uh, I went there, I spoke. Uh, there was an article Richard, uh, Richard Astle had organized it, but you know, he'd done a press release. Now, I got a name check in the article. But if people didn't see that name check, they're not going to know that I was in Helpston. Last night, I was at a dinner for about 300 people at uh, Peterborough Cathedral uh, with business people to help promote uh, the uh, city uh, and and talk about all of those things. Again, I was there, 300 people were there, and I got uh, name-checked from the podium. But a lot of people won't know that I'm there unless they see the article. And if there is an article, it might not even mention me. Tonight, I'm going to be at another event in Peterborough. Several hundred people will be there. But again, if people are simply relying on, say, Dave, for their news uh, information, then it's likely that you're not going to be covering all these things. Uh, One of the things I did in um, the Ortons, I went to Peterborough Citizens uh, meeting uh, at the headquarters of Neen Park, and that was about two weeks ago. It was covered by Peterborough Matters, but not by Peterborough Telegraph. So if you read Peterborough Matters, you're aware of it. If you read Peterborough Telegraph... You don't know about it. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, people will say, but, you know, we don't see Charlish in the Ortons. Uh, but, you know, there I was at Neen Park, which has a huge impact on the Ortons. And again, I was in Dunblane Drive, which is Orton Southgate. 
the story was covered in uh, the Peterborough Telegraph and Peterborough Matters, I believe, in, in the summer. Um, and that was in the autumn. It was an autumn issue. Uh, but I still get people saying, we don't see you. So some people, I'm afraid, I mean, they, they, they you know, I, they, they're genuine and they don't see me. But, but I do feel that, um, uh, you know, short of being on their doorstep, uh, there's not much else I can do in terms of visibility. But, but I do, I am certainly very visible, but it's 300 square miles. The, the other thing to remember about uh, visibility and, and, and members of parliament is that take note of, of what my title is, Member of Parliament. And that means that I go to meetings of parliament in Westminster. Uh, a lot of people, when they talk about visibility, that they don't appreciate that the job description means fighting the corner for my constituents and my constituency in Westminster. So when Peterborough Hospital uh, was given £12.5 million to build 72 more bed, uh, beds, uh, bed space, that didn't arise because I was standing on a street corner being visible in Peterborough. That comes about because I'm in Westminster, in London, lobbying the health secretary, Steve Barclay, saying, can I have money for my constituents? Uh, traditionally, in the past, Cambridgeshire uh, Constabulary didn't have as many officers as it does now. Those officers didn't come about by me standing on a street corner in Peterborough and saying, you know, we want more, more officers. That came about with me being in London, in Westminster, lobbying the Home Secretary, saying, can my constabulary have more money? Likewise with education, when I got elected 18 years ago, Cambridge had traditionally had um, less money per pupil than a lot of other places. We got more money. And that was obtained by meetings in London. Uh, likewise, at the moment, Wittering flyover. It's a big issue. I've been campaigning on it for the past 18 years. But there's no point me standing on a street corner in Peterborough saying, hey, guys, I'm visible. Uh, that isn't going to get the flyover. I've had meetings in London with the ministers to do that. And likewise, with so many other things. And, you know, people write to me about their concerns about asylum seekers, about health, about uh, welfare, transport, all the... Those issues, those big decisions, and the millions of pounds that go to improve those systems, they're taken in Westminster. So I do my job in Westminster representing my people and getting the best deals for the community, but I'm also uh, visible locally, uh, as I said, at the various events that, that, that I mentioned earlier on. We're recording on the day after the by-elections in both Mid-Bedfordshire and Tamworth. What are your initial thoughts on the results? Well, it's fair to say this wasn't a, our finest hour. Certainly, Dave, we need to go away, the Conservatives, and take note of um, the public feeling and, and indeed at times anger uh, towards us. We've been in government since 2010, uh, it's 13 years, and uh, yes, we've made some mistakes. Uh, we've done a lot of good as well. Uh, people are tired of us. But what I'm finding on the doorstep is that people are saying, look, I'm not ready to vote Labour. Uh, let's be honest, Keir Starmer is no Tony Blair. Uh, and people are saying, look, I'm a Tory. I want to vote for the Conservatives. I want to support you. But I'm not seeing what I want from Conservatives. Uh, and, and they're saying I'm reluctant to vote for Labour. And that was actually shown in the two by-elections that we've just seen, where the turnout was about 30-35%. Normally, uh, the, at a general election, it would be about 67-70%. And to the extent that there's anything encouraging from these by-election results for the Conservatives, 
at least a lot of our supporters stayed at home rather than actually voting for Labour. Um, if they'd actually voted Labour, it makes our task that much more difficult. But these are people who are saying, convince me to go out there and vote for you again. Uh, we need to take lessons. We need to learn. And and it's going to be uphill. I, I, I don't have an inside track as to when the election will be. Uh, I think it'll be next October, November. But uh, that does give us time. And, and what I hope is that we manage to convince Tory voters to come back to the Tory fold and uh, that they don't give Labour a, a, fault by, a, a vote by default uh, rather than actually wanting to vote Labour. Since the 2019 election, 23 MPs have had the whip withdrawn, resigned or been recalled by the constituents following accusations of bullying, sexual harassment, racism or lying to the House. Are the people who are becoming politicians getting worse or are the parties and their colleagues getting better at calling them out? That's a very good question. I think the environment for members of parliament is a lot different now to when I wanted to be a member of parliament when I was doing my A-levels in the, um, uh, you know, when I was at school. There's a lot of pressure now, and I'm not in any way excusing the behavior. You know, it needs to be called out and and, uh, the rules need to be followed right to the end. I think politicians... reflect society there's 650 of us and it's important that we have people there from all walks of life but I think that with the added pressures that we have uh, certainly we need to be a bit more careful uh, in terms of bullying and and the like that 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 isn't taken out on our staff Uh, I stood up in parliament I think it was by Mrs. Questions when I actually spoke up for our staff uh, because they take the brunt of the abuse that uh, is targeted towards us. Uh, I have three full-time staff. There's no way I or any other MP could manage uh, to do with all we do. So, so you know, they're at the front line uh, taking the abuse, dealing with the work, uh, and, and I think sometimes perhaps we as, as politicians need to bear that in mind. Uh, but I think that it's good that we have diversity in Parliament, Uh, But we do need to be mindful uh, that uh, society is changing. All workplaces are changing. Uh, How employers respond and deal with people who work for them uh, is much different now than 10, 15, certainly 20, 30 years ago. What were your first thoughts when you saw that the president of your association resigned from the council's conservative group, saying that there was a toxic culture and bullying within the group? I'm deeply saddened. Um, These are conservative councillors. Seven have just lost and and another one had gone about a year beforehand in Standground, Chris Harper. And and these are all conservative councillors we work as a team, uh, the Member of Parliament, with their councillors to do the best we can for the people we serve. And I was deeply disappointed that differences were not able to be resolved. Uh, there are big egos, there are big personalities in the world of politics, whether it's at parish council level, whether it's a district level, it's a county level, unitary level, or in Parliament. And on the whole, people get on and manage to work things out. Sometimes it doesn't work out, and it was the case in this instance. 
Uh, and, and I really was sorry, one, that we lost control of the council, and we've still got a, a leader who's conservative, uh, but it seems that as of 1st November, that may not be the case. But can I just say that ultimately, my main concern is the people of Peterborough and all that the council serves, Peterborough and the surrounding villages. My main concern is them, the people. And I very much hope that whatever now happens, they've left, Peterborough First has been formed. But my main concern is that whoever is running the council does so uh, to the best of their abilities, not from their own political egos or their own political angles, but for what is necessary and for the people of Peterborough. And I want to see that that happens. And I will be holding whoever's in, in charge to account um, I've held the Conservatives to account. You'll be aware that uh, when necessary, I will speak up against Conservative administrations. Uh, we had appalling education results year on year on year, and John Holditch was the leader of the council in charge of the, uh, and also in charge of the education portfolio. Uh, and I made it absolutely clear that the results we were getting locally were completely unacceptable uh, because I have a duty for my constituents, the parents, to challenge councils uh, and others in positions of authority locally to make sure that they deliver for the people. So rest assured that uh, whoever is in, in uh, whoever's running the council, I will continue to hold them to account. One example is um, the recent uh, issue with the Hilton Hotel. Uh, the, we are assured, and I spoke to Wayne yesterday at this uh, dinner that I was, uh, Wayne Fitzgerald, uh, leader of the council, uh, and I sought some assurances that the £15 million pounds that um, was in there, which was council money, taxpayers' money, uh, how secure was that? Uh, and what is going to be done to ensure that that hotel does get completed quickly because there's jobs there. I think there'll be about 75 uh, more jobs. It'll boost the economy. It's right in the heart of Peterborough. It's going to be a good, uh, good hotel, which will be uh, one that we can all be proud of which hopefully will attract other people here to have conferences and so on and so forth. So I will be holding uh, to account, whether it's Wayne or somebody else in, in a few days' time, to say, why did we end up in this situation? Uh, because at the moment the conversation is, we're in this situation. I want to know, could it have been prevented? What was done six months ago to try and ensure that there was the proper monitoring of everything uh, to try and say, hang on, this isn't going in the right direction, Mr. Developer. We need to sit down and talk. Did those conversations take place? Uh, and now, if there, you know, when administrators get called in, um, it's not a good sign. Uh, so we need to make sure that um, the assets of the taxpayer, which are secured on the land, there's a charge on there. But nevertheless, I want to make sure that every single penny of that uh, loan comes back to the taxpayer. But more generally, that hotel is built and is up and running uh, for the benefit of the local community. Peterborough's population grew by over 17% between 2011 and 2021. And there's no suggestion that this level of growth is slowing. How can the already stretched services GPs, schools, and in particular dentists, uh, cope with that level of continuous growth? I think, and I'm on record for this over the years, uh, that what is really important when councils 
and decision makers who deal with the growth of towns and cities. What is really important is that they factor in the infrastructure. Uh, in my experience, there's great talk on, we want to build X number of houses. They rarely say, and we are going to be ensuring that there are X number of jobs for the occupants of those houses. And we're also going to be ensuring that there are X number of schools, primary, secondary, that there'll be shopping facilities, that there'll be dental practices, surgeries, opticians, care homes for the elderly. That last bit rarely gets mentioned. And I have made it my, my task that when I've been speaking with these decision makers to say, okay, I get the bit about the, uh, the houses, but the houses have a second equally important factor. And it's important that we have that infrastructure. Let me give you one very uh, good example. When the Hamptons, um, well, the Hamptons is, is an ongoing project. When I first got elected 18 years ago, I had a meeting with some of the developers and they told me all of their wonderful vision that we're going to build here and we're going to have this gymnasium here, we're going to have this shopping centre here, we're going to have a community centre here and whatever and so on. And then a few years later, uh, local community came to me and said, we don't have a community centre. We were promised this. So I then went to the developer. I spoke to the managing director, had a cup of coffee with him and I said, look, we can do this one of two ways. I've seen the plans, and in order for you to get permission to build all these homes, hundreds and, and all of these homes, you promised that you'd build a community center. That was part of the deal. Now, I understand that if you build a house, you build it, you sell it, you get the money. If you build a community center, it costs you a million pounds and you get nothing back. But you did promise it. Now, we can do this one of two ways. Either I can give you a hard time in the local media... MP, a tax developer, all of those headlines. And which case, and you can then build the community centre after I've done that. Or we can be sensible about this and you just go on and do it. And you know the developer, to be fair to him, said, I prefer the option of just going ahead and do it. So when you talk about visibility earlier on about media, I could have got massive coverage there of, you know, MP fighting developer, and I would have got it, whatever. Actually, what I care about is that the community gets what it wants and what it needs, and I got them that community centre, and I was totally surprised when the developers then said, would I come and cut the ribbon? Um, having forced them to spend a million pounds to, to do the community centre, um, uh, they did that. So that also helps you explain partly how I do business uh, as a member of parliament. Uh, I'm not in it for the headlines. Uh, my background is, is a pretty humble background. You know, son of a carpenter, growing up in inner city Birmingham. Uh, I know what it's like when communities don't have the facilities that they need, especially when they've been promised. And so I'm in the business of delivering. Uh, I'm not in the business of getting a headline. And I would always prefer delivery. And actually, my constituents on the whole... Um, have recognized that. Uh, I started off with, uh, when I first selected as a candidate, the majority was, uh, Brian Mowinney's majority was 8,000. Uh, at my first election, uh, I took it to 10,000, and it's been increasing over the time. It's gone to 26,000 now, just under. Uh, that will go down because of boundary changes. Also, we've been in government a long time. But the point I make is that, you know, the critics, and there are very few critics, 
who say, we don't see Shilish. Actually, judge me on the results of what you do see. Next time you go to Peterborough City Hospital, just remember you've got funding there. Peterborough City Council for years has been short of money. I've been up there lobbying Michael Gove and other ministers saying, we want the money. Julian Beasley, when she was chief executive, uh, she and I went up, had a meeting with the relevant ministers. We got the money. We just got £48 million pounds, um, for uh, the, the new station quarters. You know, that just didn't materialise. Uh, Paul Bristow, myself, we've been up there lobbying the ministers. That's, that's what politics is about. I'm in the business of delivering fine people, not getting a headline. Now, one of my listeners uh, wants me to ask you about the Peterborough Panthers, which I will do in a moment, but just a a more general question um, about the showground first. It used to be an epicentre for culture in Peterborough with annual shows such as Truck Fest, the Shire Horse Show, the East of England Show, etc. Now it's currently a holding area for car storage, although the retrospective planning for that was rejected by the council uh, this week. The future of the site currently is for 1,500 houses. Uh, what are your view on the plans as they stand? Um, I deeply regret that we've lost the showground. Um, I used to enjoy going to the agricultural show uh, and some of the other activities there. And, and uh, there used to be functions in the various rooms that you had. Uh, it's a bit of a nightmare finding the right room to get to because it's it's such a massive place. And, you know, if, if you're driving there at night and it was raining, you had to get to the right. But, but it eventually worked out. So I do deeply regret that we're losing this uh, venue. However, I also recognize the reality of the world. Uh, the agriculture show, which had been going on for decades, and we used to get, you know, mem- senior members of the royal family coming here to open it. In, in my time, we've had Prince Charles uh, and others who came. But that was simply not viable. Uh, It was not sustainable. So we do need to use that space for something else. The plans do show that this will not only be houses, but there will be other facilities there for the community, leisure facilities and the like. And I think that is good that we do have those facilities because we've got a lot of new houses. And the facilities that go with them, the restaurants, the bars, the leisure activities they haven't followed so if the plans materialize the way they are promising to be uh, then good and it's up to people like me and the city council to hold the developers to account for that i've taken umbrage with the developers and and this has again been reported because the uh, and done you know there's a perfectly good main entrance to the showground uh, which isn't near houses but instead, the transporters de- uh, delivering the vehicles, you had these massive vehicle transporters with 10, 12 cars stacked at the top of them going along on a residential road, Dunblane Drive. And that's just unacceptable. So I've been at loggerheads with the developers to say, look, you're going to do this development. Yes, there is good in the development. And I'll come to the uh, Panthers uh, in a moment. Yes, there's good in, in the development. But you've got to do it in a neighborly fashion. You've got to work with your local community. Don't just give me this nonsense about, you know, this is going to be fantastic development, new homes, new this, new that. Yes, all well and good. But that's for people. And you need to treat with respect the people uh, around you. Uh, So I have an issue with the developers at the moment that I want to make sure that uh, they come up with an agreeable solution with the people in Dunblane um, Drive. As far as the Speedway is concerned, uh, Speedway team, and the Peterborough Panthers. 
Um, in fact, today, uh, as we speak, there is an article in Peterborough Telegraph um, because I raised concerns about this at the planning committee earlier this week. Uh, at that planning committee meeting, which rejected uh, the retrospective planning application for DHL, um, I also said that no stone should be left unturned in an effort to try and, and ensure that there's a home locally uh, for the Panthers. Um, sadly, it does seem that that isn't going to be the case. I spoke with members of the, uh, the team from the developers AEPG yesterday, uh, and it does look as if it's not going to happen. But but I my last plea um, on Monday, I think on Tuesday, was no un, no stone unturned. Um, and even at this late stage, I would ask again, please, if there's anything that can be done, do so. It's it's a local institution. Uh, and it's also one that's recognised throughout the country. Uh, I've had people writing to me from across the country, um, and although there's a convention that MPs can't uh, deal with people who are not their constituents, um, people have got around it by writing to their MP and said, could you write to Shailesh? So, you know, I've been dealing with all of this uh, in an indirect way. Uh, so sorry to see the way it's working out. Um, but, you know, if there's 1% of hope, let's try and see if we can maximise that. How much interaction do you have with the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough combined authority, and in particular, Mayor Dr Nick Johnson? Um, I saw Nick Johnson yesterday. Uh, he was again at the dinner. Uh, and uh, uh, I do have had, uh, dealings with them as and when necessary. Um, I, I'm mindful that they, of course, cover the whole of Peterborough and the whole of Cambridgeshire. Uh, and my responsibility is northwest Cambridgeshire. So... Uh, my dealings with him will be much less because Nick Johnson is dealing with a whole lot of other areas. Uh, I am concerned that um, we don't get the thought process of Cambridge, which is completely different to Peterborough. And, I, and I've urged him and others that they should always look at each place in its own right because there are different needs, different cultures and different infrastructure. I um, was at a meeting uh, last week in last week or the week before uh, in uh, Wittering, uh, where there is desperate need for a bus service. Uh, for the past four years or so, um, there's been no bus service, and people are actually having to walk three miles to Peterborough or three miles uh, three miles along the A1. This is actually alongside the A1. You've got lorries and cars hurtling along at seventy miles plus. Uh, 70 miles per hour or more and people are on the verge they're walking three miles to Peterborough or three miles to Stanford to see doctors and dentists that's simply unacceptable and so I am campaigning to get a bus service for Wittering for Wandsford uh, Castor um, and, and the other surrounding villages there uh, and, and so Nick Johnson comes into that he has a strategic transport policy uh, which uh, allows funding it actually makes funding available. But that transport strategy is being blocked at the moment, and I'm investigating uh, with Peterborough City Council and with Nick uh, to see how that money can be released, uh, notwithstanding that there's this blockage. It's a bit technical, but I'm not giving up on it. And again, uh, that was a story that was covered in one of the local papers, if not both of them. What can be done to improve turnout in Peterborough, particularly at the local elections where similar to by-elections for, for national is about 30% across the city. Um, yes, and in some wards, it's down to 13 to 15%. Uh, 
I think, Dave, what we need to do is, is the public needs to have confidence in the decision makers. Right now, there is a sense of apathy, both locally and nationally. You know, people think that uh, what's the point of taking part in the political process? Because they're all the same. They're only talking about themselves. They don't care about us. Uh, and, and I think we need to get the message across that, no, this is about you. It's not about us. We need to give them the confidence. And that happens with when you're in charge, you actually deliver. And I very much hope, as I said earlier on, that you know whoever's running the show in Peterborough City Council, that they put the people first, because they're the ones who matter. Uh, and it's engagement. Uh, moving slightly away in terms of political engagement, there's a debate about, you know, Labour is saying that they will give the vote to 16-year-olds as opposed to 18-year-olds. Uh, before I got elected, I was vice chairman of the Conservative Party, and one of my responsibilities was Conservative youth. And I looked into this quite a lot. The issue is not lowering the age for voting. The issue is actually getting engagement because the uh, turnout amongst voters was lowest between the 18 to 30 category. If you lower the age to 16, it's going to remain the lowest. between. Instead of being 18 to 30, the, the lowest voting range will be from 16 to 30. And what we should be concentrating on is getting those 16 to 18-year-olds and up to 30, engaged in the political process, make it worth their while, uh, rather than saying you have a vote, uh, the vast majority of people won't be exercising. Now we're running a bit short on time, but we like to finish the podcast with some quickfire questions. Um, so firstly, what's the one change that you would make about politics or parliament? I would like to see it being more civilised um, because we want the world to be a better place in terms of how we treat our fellow human beings. Uh, and that should start at the top. Uh, and, and we as MPs um, are to blame. You switch on the TV uh, and you could just as well be watching a rowdy classroom. Uh, and so I think that uh, we need to set the standards there. And likewise, locally in politics, you know, I'd like to see a bit more constructive engagement uh, rather than... Um, how should we put this, destructive perhaps? There have been eight prime ministers in your time in Parliament. Which has been the best? It's difficult to say which has been best because they've all been different. Uh, David Cameron was uh, in coalition government and I served under, as a minister under him. I served as a minister under Theresa May. She was a lot more quiet. Uh, David was a lot more outgoing. Theresa had an inner circle, a real tight inner circle, uh, and she wouldn't move beyond it. Uh, Boris, well, Boris is Boris. Uh, uh, and then Liz Truss. Uh, well, Liz, uh, I'm afraid, tried to do things too quickly and, and, and she got it completely wrong uh, in terms of... Um, in fact, she sacked me from the cabinet because uh, I didn't support her. I supported Rishi. Uh, in fact, she sacked all of us. And, and there's an example there in, in how not to do things because... Uh, what you don't do when you become leader is to get rid of everyone who opposed you. Now, fine, she could have kept me out of the, the cabinet. That's a prerogative. But every cabinet minister, there were seven of us. All seven of us were sacked. Uh, whereas what you try to do when you become leader is that you build consensus. And that means having people from the other side there. So Liz, um, as I say, didn't last long. Uh, Rishi, difficult time to become prime minister. We had all those problems we've been in government for a long time 
So we've got baggage, we've got good points, uh, but trying to get those good points out uh, when you've been in government for such a long time is not easy. So I'm going to duck that question and, and say that um, uh, it's been a, an experience working under them all. And, and to be fair to Blair and Brown, um, uh, Tony Blair, whatever you say about him, and, and, you know, I'm a conservative news neighbor, you know, I mean, he, he knew politics. Uh, he got three consecutive victories for the Labour Party, which no other Labour leader had done. He was in power for a very long time. And, uh, you know, Gordon Brown was completely different. And, and I'm afraid Gordon Brown, in his two years, uh, spent time being miserable because he felt he should have been Prime Minister earlier. A number of your former colleagues are taking the podcasting <coughs> world by storm. Could we see a Shia Lashvara podcast in the future? Um, it's not something I've thought about, but maybe after this podcast is over, you and I can have another cup of coffee and, and see um, if you think there's potential. <laughs> Tell us something that people might not know about you. I actually do try to switch off from politics. Uh, politics can be all-consuming. It is 24-7. Uh, there was a time when I first got elected, and indeed until recent, when I would be looking at my iPad and seeing the emails and uh, whatever, and, and I now try to just actually be a bit more measured and enjoy the quality of life. So, um, but that's a private thing, uh, and, and, and I do actually enjoy the theatre. Um, I used to do taekwondo, I used to teach taekwondo, uh, pretty unfit at the moment so so the bit that people may not know is that i'm at that age where i'm developing a beer garden um i could before i could eat whatever i wanted to eat i could drink what i could drink and there was no consequences on my physical being um i'm seeing the signs of some uh physical signs which which are not looking too healthy so i'm going to try and get healthy has brexit been a success a failure or too early to tell I think it has been successful, uh, big, and, and there is a long way to go on this. Uh, the decision for Brexit was, wasn't a short-term one. Uh, the future of the world doesn't lie with the EU. The future of the world lies with countries such as India, Brazil, Indonesia, the Southeast Pacific uh, nations. That's where the economies are being driven, in 10, 20, 30 years, that's where the world will be turning to. If we only look inwards to our next-door neighbours, then, given that they're not going anywhere, we as a country would not be going anywhere. And can I just say to all those people who, whenever a company decides to leave the UK, say, this is entirely because of Brexit, can I just ever so gently say to them, do a bit of history work, and you'll find that even before the word Brexit came onto the radar, companies were leaving the UK for a whole lot of other reasons. It's cheaper to do... I remember when Blair was uh, Prime Minister, countries were going to the EU because they would manufacture stuff cheaper there. So countries have left the EU... Uh, companies, not countries. Companies uh, were, were leaving when Blair was gone. So anything difficult that happens, all I say to people is just... Uh, recognize that Brexit has happened. It's not going to change. You know, the Labour Party is not saying we're going to go back in. Uh, and the Conservative Party certainly isn't doing that. So uh, th that isn't on the radar. Recognize where we are and make the best of it. And I think that with time, we will see that it was the right decision. 
it was the right decision because our trade will improve. And also, the fact that we are no longer shackled by the EU and all the other countries means we've been able to take quick decisions. The pandemic was a good example. The EU was haggling with the the medical companies that were manufacturing vaccines and saying, well, hang on, we're a population of 500 million, so we we deserve a better deal, and we want to see uh, more progress uh, with your trials. Whereas Boris Johnson simply said, I'm going to put the people of Britain first, go out there, just buy 100 million of these, 100 million of those, 100 million of those, he was being advised, well, actually, the trials aren't... He said, I don't care about the trials. One of them is going to work out, or maybe two of them are going to work out. And when they work out, I want to be there first. I'm not going to be like the EU haggling. And that's why we were the first people to have somebody vaccinated in the world, I believe. And, and then the EU, you will recall, were getting upset because we had vaccines that they didn't have. And that is because the Prime Minister of the UK was able to be decisive and say... I don't have to go through the bureaucracy and all the other leaders of the EU to take a decision on what's best for my country. So there are advantages. Um, The pandemic, there was dark sides to it as well, and and, and we all know that as well. But I think the idea of of a nation, uh, the size of Britain, the ambition of Britain, being able to do as it pleases... um, uh, when it wants to do it on its own terms has got to be good uh, and i just leave this thing thought about the eu that you know uh, people saying oh well you know britain was there but the eu it it has its anthem it has its currency it has its own flag it has its own constitution these are all symbols of statehood we were and we were going to end up in fact we were almost in a a state within the eu whereas we managed to break away from that. Uh, and and uh, I think it'll be a lot better for us up there. And simply look at the world and where it's going, and the EU isn't going there. Finally, what is Peterborough's biggest selling point? Peterborough's biggest selling point is its location. Um, it is uh, within a certain given radius uh, close to X number of million people. I, forgive me, I haven't got all the figures to hand, but, but I did look into this. And there are any number of people in their tens of millions who are within a short distance of a train ride or a car ride to Peterborough. Um, that includes businesses as well. Uh, it means that man- stuff that we manufacture, we can also get out of Peterborough. It means people can come here it is a growth city. It's got a fantastic history. It's got a wonderful cathedral. Uh, it's got... Uh, the, the, its diversity is actually a strength uh, for people who are international uh, because then you've got a workforce that can help. I remember going to a call centre once, which was... Um, which had, uh, This wasn't in London. Uh, and the call centre needed people from a variety of uh, backgrounds for languages. So, you know, we could have with all the languages we've got, any number of call centres, which is jobs. I'm not saying that we should be the call centre sent, you know, capital in the UK, anything but. Uh, but I think it's got um, a workforce that is ambitious. It's got, uh, leaving aside the current difficulties with the local council, it's got, uh, on the whole, uh, leaders locally who are ambitious for the city. And we've got a university here. We've got training facilities. We can produce 
the workforce that people want. We just want them to come here and use us. Charlotte Farah, thank you for joining me on The Politics of Peterborough. My pleasure, Dave. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Shailish for joining me. You can follow him on Twitter at Shailish Vara and keep up to date with what he's been up to on his website, shailishvara.com. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so that you get each episode as soon as it's released. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at politicspboro. Please let me know what you thought of the episode. If you have any suggestions as to who you'd like to hear on the show or any questions you'd like me to put to our guests, you can email us at politics.peterborough at hotmail.com. This episode of The Politics of Peterborough was created, hosted, recorded and edited by me. We'll see you next time. 